Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is the Low Level Hell Podcast, Episode 10. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, the program that explores the world of rotary and fixed wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey everyone, welcome back. Hope you're having a great week and you're enjoying the show so far. I have an amazing guest today who I think most of you are probably familiar with, and we'll get to him in a few moments. But first I want to answer some listener mail, and our first one is from a longtime listener, Paul, who asks... I was curious, were the OH-58 Deltas rebuilt OH-58 Alphas? Could not find that info. Um, I don't believe that's true, because I believe that the Alpha Chuck was uh, basically a Bell 206, whereas the Delta is a 407. I'm pretty sure they have a lot of the same components. Pretty sure it's the same engine, now that I think about it. But uh, but no, I don't think they turned Alphas into Deltas. Uh, he f- goes on and says, I flew the Alpha models, very underpowered. Had to do running takeoffs on the skids when we were at Fort Bliss. Always flying in the limits. Uh, yeah, that never really changed. So, um, you know, that was one thing about being a Kiowa guy is you, you were always flying on the margins. Uh, it was not uncommon, particularly in Afghanistan up in the hills, which, you know, if I recall, Fort Bliss was basically the same uh, pressure altitude and, and, and same uh, MSL. And, uh, yeah, we, we were routinely, you know, bouncing our way down the runway trying to trying to pick up speed. So, so yeah, so thanks for that question, Paul. And our second question is from a, a Patreon flight lead, Dami. Thanks for the question, Dami. And he asks, how do you deal with operating buttons on the cyclic or collective when you're not the person on the controls? Uh, I.e., if you're in the left seat and want to use the buttons on the cyclic, like radios or things like that. Um, yeah, so it can be challenging, particularly in the, the Kiowa. Uh, you had guys, uh, you know, new guys who would kind of, uh, ham fist onto the cyclic and uh, try to try to move everything around because it, you know from the left seat you could only uh, control the MMS from the left seat and that control was on the cyclic so when you got more experienced you would kind of I don't know how to explain it kind of wrap your fingers around the top of the cyclic and just bring your thumbs down and kind of manipulate the, uh, the the switches and the buttons and just kind of follow along you know so the other guys moving the controls and you're just kind of you know relaxing your arms and just following the motion of the cyclic but then you're you're applying whatever pressure you need to, to push the buttons and move the toggles uh the good news story is you probably weren't having to do anything on the site if he was doing anything sort of dynamic you know if he's he's ripping and roaring and, and zipping around corners you're probably not using the site anyway 
and vice versa. If you're trying to do stuff on the site, he's probably holding it pretty still. So it never really was a huge problem, but you can definitely tell the new guys because, you know, you were, you were kind of fighting against them. It was kind of like you had forced trim on or something. And then his second question is, if you have pilot on controls, can the MFD, MPD, uh, he's not sure which one, to, uh, which one to talk about. I think we're talking about the Apache here uh, on the uh, the MPD. Um, can the MPD display what the co-pilot is looking at through the optics, or do you have to manipulate your own camera control? Um, you, I mean, it's sort of complex. You can bring up what the the, the front seat is looking at in the in the sights, for instance, when you're in the back seat, um, and and you could bring up the left seater's screen and in, in the right seat. Uh, I, I typically didn't do that. Um, the only time it would be sort of confusing is if you had a, a processor fail in the uh, Apache where it would it would sort of automatically give you the other guy's vision. So if he's looking out the left side of the aircraft through the uh, the whatever night vision sensor he's using and you're looking out the right and suddenly you had a processor fail, well, you're seeing his image. So your unaided eyes looking to the right, your aided eyes looking to the left. And that, that could be a little confusing. But you'll get a message that pops up and tells you that that's happening. So you'll you'll not be too confused, but it's still a little bit much to, to take in. So thanks for that question, Dami, and for your support to the show through Patreon. And honestly, I'd like to just kind of go through and, and thank our Patreons again. I, I'm pretty bad about uh, kind of keeping up with saying thanks, so I, I just want to say thanks to everybody. So for, to our flight leads, we've got Chase R., uh, Jeanette Appleby, and Dami, our flight leads. Um, and we've got for our mission pilots, Alex Pitt, uh, Jeff H., TJ Gaskell, Lee, Nathan Scott, Ed Veras, Michael Felmy, Dave B., Louis Steele, Philip Sobel, Nick Greenway, Noah Leeson, Robert McGregor, and Cappy. And for our crew chiefs, we've got Philip Kuffner, Michaelis Jorick, sorry if I screwed that up, Christoph Oleski, I'm sure I butchered that and I apologize, but I appreciate your support, uh, Brandon Pye, Cam Flip, and Ramadi Taxi Driver. So thanks again for all of your support you give to the show, it, it means a lot. Now, it doesn't cost you a dime to support the show if you'd like. You can just uh, click that five-star rating and leave a review. Uh, sharing the show and your social media, talking to your friends about it. Really, growth in this industry comes through exposure. And the only way we can get our word out is, is really help from you. So that's much appreciated. You can take a look at our website, thelowlevelhellpodcast.com. And there you can find links to our Patreon, as well as to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, as well as a link to send us questions here so we can answer them on the show. Well, it is time to strap in and get going with our next guest and the little engine that could. Someone somewhere called it the Fighting Falcon, but to the guys and gals who drive it, it'll always be the Viper. All right, everyone, if you don't uh, recognize the name of our guest, you haven't been paying attention, he's John Waters, and he runs a podcast called The Afterburn, which is pretty awesome, so you should definitely check it out, and we'll talk about that here a little bit later, but I just want to thank you for coming on the show, John. What's going on? Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here and uh, do a little chatting. It was great having you on the Afterburn, and now I'm glad I could be a guest on your show. Yeah, no, I had a great time with that. Um, I know my mom was sharing it everywhere. Oh, my son's on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. Um, yeah, so just tell us, you know, for those who don't know anything about you, just you know, kind of give us a rundown of, of who you are, where you're from, what you do. Yeah, originally I grew up in uh, Peachtree City, Georgia, just south of Atlanta there. Kind of an aviation community, big Delta community, but a lot of my neighbors growing up, their their parents flew for Delta, but they all have a military-type background, which was initially a big push or vector for me to get into military aviation. I went to Georgia Tech, did ROTC, commissioned to the Air Force, was fortunate enough to get a pilot slot, went to pilot training in Columbus, uh, Mississippi, lovely little garden spot there. 
spent a few years after pilot training instructing. I was a first assignment instructor pilot. In that time period, I did a deployment to Afghanistan flying the MC-12, doing intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. It was a short six, seven month uh, stint there. And then I was back to the T-6 for a short period of time before I eventually moved on to the F-16, where I rounded out my active duty career. F-16, I was fortunate enough to deploy, uh, which is something I always wanted to do in a fighter. I went to Operation Inherent Resolve and did a little bit of work uh, in that operation. And I finally wrapped up my active duty time as an F-16 demo pilot, which was a completely change of pace from combat ops, but a, but a fun assignment nonetheless. Yeah, I want to talk about that because I've always been curious about the the whole demo team thing. But I want to go back. You you said you went to basically not the Air Force Academy. And I, and I want to highlight that because I think growing up, and I know a lot of other people, sometimes you think like, well, in order to be a fighter pilot, you have to go to the Air Force Academy. But obviously, that's not the case. Was it? Is that pretty competitive? Is it really hard if you don't go to the academy or how does that work? You know, I think it depends and everything ebbs and flows with the needs of the Air Force, right? Um, it could be a year where we're fat on pilots and we don't need that many. So then it's going to be very competitive and, and vice versa. Going to a service academy like the Air Force Academy or Naval Academy, um, the majority of pilot slots go there first and then the rest gets divvied up among ROTC. So I'd say it's probably a little bit more competitive although I don't have the data to back that up, that's a little more competitive to get an R, a pilot slot out of ROTC yeah. than it would be the academy. Um, and then to become a fighter pilot, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter where you get your degree from and where you're, you're commissioned from. It's purely based on performance and the needs of the Air Force. So if you do well and you want a fighter and there's some available at the end of pilot training, uh, then you'll probably be lucky enough to go, go out there and fly fighters. But they don't care about where you went to school or what you got your degree in. And that's probably the biggest takeaway for me. I initially thought you had to be an engineer to be a pilot. Not not a true story. I'm yeah. not an engineer. Uh, but I picked my schools based on the fact that I thought I had to be an engineer. So if I'd had a mentor, if I'd done a little bit more research and a little bit more digging, I could have educated myself better and probably set myself up for success. Not that it didn't work out, but I could have made my initial sure. foray into ROTC, into to college, Probably a little bit easier and maybe have chosen a different path. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think you're right on that, that a lot of guys, I know growing up, I thought that was the thing um, that you, you had of some sort of engineering or some sort of technology, but you, you could probably get a basket weaving degree or, or whatever. It's just getting your foot in the door in flight school is the trick. And then just being good, you know, at, at that, um, which sounds universal. I mean, I think every, every military flight school is kind of the same as once you get through the door, it's just, it's okay. How do you perform and, and, and where you end up on the OML? I think on your show, you were talking to somebody, maybe it was you that was talking, I can't remember, but you know, about guys coming in in the reserve and already knowing what they're going to fly. Um, and that being kind of weird to the active, I know it was for me, my stick buddy, uh, I don't know if you guys have that term, but what we call, uh, the guy that you go through flight school with and you have the same instructor pilot, it's called a stick buddy, but he was a reserve guy. And, you know, from day one, he knew he was flying Blackhawks and for all of us active guys, we're like, Oh, I don't know what we're going to get, you know, and, and you're, you're nervous the whole time. So. Yeah. I definitely didn't know about the guard or reserve going into active duty air force and definitely didn't know about it until day one of pilot training when I was sitting in class and there's like four or five dudes who were like, Oh yeah, I'm going to go fly C-17s. I'm going to go fly up 16s. I'm going to go do this and that at this location. I'm like, well, how do you already know that when we're all here competing? But they'd been hired by a guard or reserve unit as a pilot trainee. And so 
but that's definitely a very competitive process and can take quite a long time to do. But if they're fortunate enough to get a pilot training slot at a guard or reserve base, like, you know, where you're going to live, you know, what you're going to fly. Uh, you just show up to pilot training, do your best, um, meet, meet the minimum standards at least. And then you get to yeah. go back home at the end of the day and fly that platform, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I think about how less stressful flight school would have been if I'd have already <laughs> known, you know, because the yeah, whole time you're just, you're just fighting for that, that slot. Yeah. Um, no joke. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you, you were talking about uh, the, the first assignment instructor pilot. So that is essentially you guys get done and they just kind of roll you back into where you just came from. And now you're teaching guys who are a couple years behind you. Yeah, it's I, yeah, I know the Navy does it. I'm not sure if the Army does it or not, but no. the Air Force <laughs> will take a couple guys and girls from each class and then they will yeah. make the first assignment instructor pilot. So you'll graduate and then you'll go spend about six months in San Antonio learning how to become an instructor in a T6, a T1, or a T38, you'll go back to that pilot training base and you'll instruct new students for the next three years. So it's usually not a super desirable job because most people want to go right out and, and do the mission. And I can say uh, definitely fit in that category. I want to go out and do different things, but it was a great assignment. I learned, I learned a bunch and it was very rewarding for sure. Yeah, I imagine you get a lot of stick time with that too. Yeah, I think most guys, especially as a FAPE, I mean, your your job is just to fly. So flying two or three times a day is not uncommon. You know, getting a thousand hours by the time you leave or 1200 hours by the time you leave, depending on the plane, um, is not uncommon in the T6 especially. So it's pretty, pretty awesome for a young guy or gal to go out there and, and rack up a bunch of hours. And I mean, in airmanship, I think too, that translates across whatever platform they end up flying next. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that just comes from the experience and it's not even about the stick wiggling and it's about understanding airspace and timing and how to talk and, and do all these good, you know, aviate things. And especially when you're flying with, now you're flying with a junior guy. So, you know, the buck stops with you. Um, and not only do you have to take care of yourself, but you're trying to keep this kid out of trouble. So yeah, I think that's probably a great experience. So going into that, did you already know, I, I know you, you kind of said it, but now I forgot. Did you already know you're going to have F-16s at the end of that assignment or is that something that came about after that? No, and I'm sure it's like this in the Army too. Like every job you have, every assignment, you're always being racked and stacked. You know, there's always a number one, there's always a number 10, like first and last, right? And you're, you're going to fall somewhere in between. Pilot training, same deal, right? The number one dude or dudette gets their choice if it's out there. Um, when you become a FAPE, you're recompeting again. So you're spending that three years in a, as an assignment, you know, being a mm -hmm. T6, T38, or T1 instructor, and you're competing against all your peers who are also FAPEs in that year group to, mm -hmm. at the end of that assignment cycle, to get a major weapon system to go out there and fly it, you know, and just rinse and repeat, you know, you get to that 16, again, you're, you're competing, you're getting racked and stacked amongst your peer group for the next assignment, to the next job, to the next you know, training course, et cetera. So at that point, though, because I know you, you mentioned all these other aircraft that you would fly in that first assignment, but and those are those are racked against the type of pilot training, right? So there's like, you know, and I don't know them all, but like T-38s, maybe they're, they're for fighter pilots and then T-whatevers are for the, the, the lift guys. Is that is that right? Yeah, more or less. I mean, everyone's going to start out in the T6, and then you're going to funnel mm -hmm. to the T-38 okay. or the T1. 
And then the T6 vapes, they're going to come from both the T38 and the T1. So I came from the, I, I graduated T38s and I went back mm-hmm. to be a T6 vape. But they keep a couple okay. guys to be T38 vapes and they'll keep a couple to be T1 vapes. Um, and, you know, if, like for me, since I was a T38, you know, graduated T38s, I was on a fighter bomber track. When it came time okay. to competing for the F16, all of us who had graduated T38s, like the T6 vapes, and the T-38 FAPES all competed in that year group to go fly F-16s or B-1s or B-52s or whatever it is. Okay. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting to is like you you at least knew what track you were in, even though it's still a pretty broad track. You talk fighters and bombers. I mean, there's that's a lot of, lot of uh, selection there. Yeah, and actually, I mean, of note, um, so I graduated and my class was 09-14, so 2009 class 14, um, about three days before our assignment night, the commander came in and he gave us a sheet with literally 69 choices of planes. And it was every heavy, like guard reserve base, every active duty, heavy base, fighters, bombers, everything, because we were the first class to drop heavies out of T-38s. Traditionally, the T-38 track was only a fighter bomber track, but we were the first class to have heavies drop out of it. So uh, not, not a super warm, fuzzy, exciting feeling right before drop night to have that news nugget dropped on us. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we, we rolled into it not knowing what was going to happen. And, and out of that drop, we did have two of our classmates that ended up tracking to heavy platforms out of the T-38. So um, yeah. slightly different wow. and unique. That's, uh, I mean, that's an emotional time. In, in flight school is is finding out what you're going to be what you're going to be flying and i remember i watching some some high emotions during those those selections and stuff and, and we'd get like the rumors that oh well, your class is going to be an all blackhawk class like all of you are getting blackhawks or all of <laughs> yeah. you are getting apaches or something because there's yeah. a shortage and you know and you just get all these stories but you know for us at the time when i went through there was only four options anyway it was like well you're either going to be an attack guy a scout guy or a lift guy heavy or medium so wasn't as, as many options did you want i mean is f16 like was that what you wanted or was it you know scraps you know actually i i wanted a10s first and then i put really? fate okay. yeah and uh the reason i did that is you know being young and not really aware i there were a couple good f16 dudes uh, as instructors so i don't want to bash all, all of them going through pilot training but there's like one or two dudes who i would say were not really uh looked favorably upon by the students, nor did anyone get really excited when they got to go fly with them. I mean, I had an awesome flight commander who was a Viper dude, but even his awesomeness was outweighed by the fact that like, man, the rest of these guys, I don't want to go fly with them. Um, And I was like, I want to go do close air support. I want to support the guys and gals on the ground. So the A-10s where I want to be, if I can't do that, I'll fape and then hopefully have another chance to compete for an A-10 later on. In that whole yeah. period, I did my MC-12 bit, and that was the fact that I gained a lot more exposure to the Viper community and what the actual Viper mission was. And for me, that was huge because that that did a course correction for me. And then the Viper was my first choice out of being a FAPE, so I was fortunate to get that. So what was it like first time you, you got into that cockpit? That's 16? Yeah. Um, well, it was July, I think. Yeah, July <laughs> in Phoenix. Uh, I think it was 119 degrees. I took off just after noon. 
Um, so uh, I remember doing the ground ops and dropping my mask and it was like I was pouring a water bottle out. Uh, yeah. so it was warm and it's one of those deals like, you know, we took off and I think I was still standing on the ground. I eventually caught back up to the jet once we were parked and the engine was shut down. Uh, but it was awesome. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's what yeah. I wanted to go do. And, um, again, I had a great IP. You do a couple rides with it in the two seat variant. You do like four rides in the two seat variant. Um, mm. I, I had a good dude in the back seat. Um, and so it, it was pretty badass. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you point that, that, uh, uncomfortableness out though, for people, because I don't think that the average person who's never really been in a, in a military aircraft understands just how blazing hot they can get. And I can imagine only, you know, F-16s and, and things like that, where th- there's nothing, I mean, it's just glass. I assume right. they put some sort of cover before you get on and keep it covered for as long as possible, but still it doesn't take long to, to turn into an oven. Yeah. And it's a huge, the, the canopy on the F-16 is a huge magnifying glass. So I will mm. say not to jump too far ahead, but you know, in mm. humid environments, F-16, we actually have to go full hot on the environmental controls to dry the system out for about five minutes. Okay. Um, and so I've definitely had some times summertime in South Carolina or Florida and you're in the sun and you're full hot. I don't know how hot that blows, but I mean, I've gotten out and just my entire flight suit is just drenched uh, because yeah. it's designed to cool the avionics, the, right. the pilot's secondary thought, or you'll be flying at altitude and cool down. But yeah, it, it can get really hot and uncomfortable in there. Yeah, the Apache, just the way it's designed is, is you know, you don't have much over your head either. And, and coming from the Kiowa, which kind of had a little bit of a roof, I guess you could say, I mean, it definitely got warm. You know, you learned real early on, particularly on deployment. You know, if you were on QRF, we'd always leave our helmets in the aircraft and the junior <laughs> guys would, you know, you'd hang it on this hook. So it would just sit upside down and just, and then you'd get run out, you know, oh, there's QRF launch. You'd run out and you put that on and your ears would just, you know, <laughs> singe off your head. So after a while you, you learned real quick to like, well, let's put this face down on the seat. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but then going to the Apache and, and just getting in and like, there's nothing to cover it up, you know? And, oh yeah, I've got a picture of the, where it shows my temperature in my seat and it was 120 and you know, that cool. was, that was awful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was gross. But people don't think about that, right? They just think the sexiness of flying these aircraft, which they are sexy, but you're going to pay a little bit and you're going to be, you're going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, so, no doubt. It's not a Rolls Royce. No, no. And like you said, it's not designed to make you comfortable. Um, even though sometimes we, we probably wish that it were, but, uh, I know the Apache was the same way where that, you know, you've got all this, uh, environmental control, but it ain't for you. You, you get a little bit of cast <laughs> off from it. Though I don't know for you guys, but people told me going in the Apache, like, oh, it's really good. It gets really cold and it'll, it'll throw ice chunks at you. And I was like, wow, that sounds like BS, you know? And I was flying around Fort Rucker in the uh, qualification course and something, I kept seeing something flick next to me, you know, as we're flying. And I keep turning my head looking I'm like, what is that? You know, finally I caught it and it sure enough was a, was a little chunk of ice coming out of the, the, the environmental control right past my head. So I don't know if you guys got any ice. In it, yeah, it depends. It's actually funny. One of the guys in my squadron, his, you know, the T-38, the environmental controls in that are terrible. And there's actually like a really funny video out there of a, a Japanese student with an American flying around and they can't understand. He can't understand him. He's got the heat like full blast. And the instructor's mm-hmm. just yelling at this guy. But it kind of paints a picture of how terrible the 38 ECS is. Um, and yeah. then fast forward to the Viper, like, oh, this thing's going to be sweet. But one of the guys in my squadron, his uncle actually designed the ECS and the F-16. And this was like his life's work, like his biggest project, you know, his his bookmark. This was what his life was about. 
And mm. so he gets to the squadron and his uncle asks him, you know, you know, how's it flying F-16? They, all he wants to know about is the ECS and how great it is. And Thor, he does nothing but like bash how terrible the ECS is and the Viper, you know, and you're like, oh man, this guy spent his entire, his entire life uh, work designing the system. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, it worked great to, I mean, I air quotes with great for cooling the avionics, but for the yeah. pilot, it was, it left something to be desired. Yeah. No, that's, that's wild. Um, you know, I, I'm nerding out because I, I grew up around F-16s. I grew up in, uh, in Tampa, Florida. So McDill Air Force Base was yeah. there. And, and when I was growing up, there was a, just a, a ton of F-16s They were constantly flying overhead. So I've always, I've always been fascinated with them. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the aircraft just for, for people who don't know too much. Um, it's fascinating, like Genesis, I'm sure you've read, you know, uh, the, the book about John Boyd. Yeah, actually, I have it with me on my trip right now because I'm getting ready to reread it. It's been a few years, but yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, incredible book. <laughs> yeah, it just, he's incredible. Yeah, I mean, what a wild tale. Um, I just read it probably in the last two years for the first time, and and very interesting. But you know, he talks about it talks about the the design of the F sixteen and and some of the the trials and tribulations of, of that development. But I mean, just for 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 listeners, you know, just tell us a little bit about the aircraft. You know, it's a lightweight, nimble fighter designed, you know, initially for like a day VFR, highly maneuverable. Uh, but what it's evolved to in today is the backbone, I would say, of many air forces around the world's, you know, their air force and their combat capability. You know, we're no different in the United States. The Air Force employs the F-16 through a multitude of different mission sets. And that's where a multi-role fighter, if you look at the F-16 today versus what it was, inherently, you know, the bones of it are the same, more or less. Uh, mm -hmm. The design concept, the aerodynamics, all that is relatively unchanged. But what's vastly different now is the amount of avionics and electronics that have been put into the jet, which have made it, you know, capable to fight in today's arena. And to me, it's like fascinating that... Yeah, this plane that was designed in the 60s, more or less, is still flying today and just how robust and how capable it is just with a few upgrades. So it does everything from air to air to air to ground uh, and anything in between. And it's a really versatile, versatile platform. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I want to get to as well is talk about it in that air to ground role. Because um, I think everyone kind of gets the idea of the, the dog fighting and all that good stuff. But but the ability to drop bombs and, and the, the multitude of weapon systems that, that you guys can carry in the different type of roles. Um, so I know it can be equipped with a pod. That's an external uh, attachment. It's not something that comes standard. Yeah. So, um, you know, I flew block fifties, which is the newest variant that our mm -hmm. air force has uh, Lockheed Martin's producing block seventies now, but mm -hmm. most of those were off the assembly line in the early nineties. And then uh, some into the early two thousands there, but it's, plug and play is probably not the right term to use for it, but you know, with the C jet suppression of enemy air defenses, that's a block 50 mission set. Um, you're going to have multiple pods strapped onto the jet. So you're going to have a harm targeting system. You're going to have a targeting pod strapped on either side of the intake there, which will run different mm. sensors for you inside the cockpit um, and allow, go out there and do that, that wild weasel mission. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about seed. Cause that's one of those things that, um, I think the average person doesn't know too much about, and and even for me, it, with my background, for us when we talk about seed, we we typically think about artillery, 
Um, and for people who don't know anything we're talking about, talking about suppression of enemy air defense. So the, the idea, at least from the helicopter side, is you know, you're conducting a, uh, a long-range attack or an air assault or something, and you've templated some, some air defense uh, along the route or, or in some position that it can affect you. And so you, you have some sort of uh, effect on that seed that's timed. So let's say you're going to fly past it at, you know, 1300. Well, you want to probably be attacking it at, you know, 1257 and and disrupting it so that your assault force can get by. But for the jets, I mean, you guys have got to have some sort of capability like that, too. And and so the F-16 is is one of the, the tools that we have to do that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, seed, you know, suppression of enemy air defenses is a, I would say a rather complex mission set. And. You know, I mentioned earlier that F-16 is a multi-role fighter. So my deployment and OIR was doing close air support predominantly, right? Mm. That's a mission set that we really don't even train to. And we didn't train to at Shaw. It was just one that if we had a deployment coming up, we would mm. spin up for it, right? Because all of our time was predominantly focused on the seed mission because of mm. its complexity. So inherently, the whole point of it is to be the guys to go kick the door down get everyone to look at you and shoot at you so that one, you can geolocate and find enemy air defenses, uh, radars, missile launchers, things like that. And then go out there and disrupt and destroy or suppress them so that the bomb droppers that or whoever needs to get into the target area can get into the target area and out of the target area unharassed mm-hmm. and survive. And then we'll close the door on the way out. So first in mm-hmm. last out is a motto of the wild weasel mission. Um, and again, it's to go out there geolocate those enemy air defense sites and wreak havoc so that they're ineffective when it comes to whatever entity that needs to get from point a to point b and back to point a okay so so you're essentially the the matador shaking the red you know thing (laughs) you're you're that red thing and and trying to draw attention so okay i never thought about in that terms that you know i guess i pictured it as you guys would, would show up, throw a bunch of missiles at templated or detected, you know, SAMs or, or what have you, and then, and then get out of the way. But it sounds like you guys stay there and just keep, keep drawing attention and keep, keep being a thing so that the other guys can do their, their stuff. Yeah. And obviously it, it depends on the mission and the environment and what's, what's going on there and levels of risk, et cetera. But yeah, inherently that's going to be it. I mean, there are definitely aspects of seed and, I would say in the Block 50, you know, we carry high-speed anti-ration missiles, but also Growlers carry them in some other platforms. Well, Growlers not very maneuverable, and it's also a uh, you know very valuable asset that we don't have many of. So we might save a you know, preemptive shot, a pet shot of a harm missile to time out at a specific point. Like we know they're going to turn the radar on at time X um, because that's when you know, you're going to be flying by that area and you you could be threatened. We might have the yeah. growler take that shot, right? And then, and then a block 50 or block 52, uh, you know, Viper that's doing doing the wild weasel mission. The goal is to be in the weeds and and ready so that if that shot hits and then the radar still turns on or it's still effective to then reattack or again, get them to look at it. So being up in the, the threat area is typically the... Uh, the method that wild weasels are going to go after it. But again, it depends and every scenario is different. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think a lot of people too, the, the lay person may think that when you're talking about air defense, that these guys just, they just have their radar on the whole time and are always looking, but that's not the case. And so what you're essentially saying is 
a lot of times you've got to draw some attention. You've got to get them to to act so that you can react and they can counteract. You know, there's a lot of lot of moving pieces. But the idea that you're just kind of going into a scenario and it's like, well, there's a radar over there, 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 and there. We're just going to shoot them real quick and be done. Right. It's not really the case. So okay. Yeah, it would be it'd be awesome if that was the case. If I mean, you knew sure. where everything was and it was fixed, and they didn't communicate. But the reality of it, especially as things get more advanced, right? And like, yeah, technology advances. Just like we went from the Nokia cell phone to the iPhone 13 or whatever we're on now, iPhone 12, <laughs> uh, vastly different, you know. And that's just a cell phone. So uh, you can only imagine what adversaries are doing with you know things that kill people and break things. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's all true. Um, so going back to, you said something and and I understand why you said it. Um, but, but for listeners, you you talked about, you know, we didn't really train for close air support unless we knew we were going to do it. And I think what you were, what you were saying too, is close air support while complex is not as complex as the seed mission, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cause obviously close air support, can be very complex um, and you're and you're dealing with your, the end user like lives, right? And it's very right. real and it, it's immediate um, and you're seeing those effects and hearing those effects uh, very close. Not that you don't do that in other mission sets, but I think close air sport, there's a personal aspect to it that makes it very, very real. But um, seed, in my opinion, you know, is, is far more complex as far as the technology that's involved and having to know the different systems and the different threats out there, the different tactics and what you can use and what you can't use and what's effective, um, as well as managing the other things. Because while you're doing seed, we're not only mentioning the air-to-air piece, right? But that's typically a factor too, right? An F-16 mm-hmm. is an air-to-air fighter as well. So on a good day, flying a Block 50, if you have a, you know, a missile going at an enemy aircraft, a harm going into a radar site, and a bomb coming off your jet, all three of those types of weapons in the air at the same time, that's a really good day. And while it's you're training to it, that's not a very uncommon thing to have happen uh, in training. So there's a lot going on, and you're moving between a lot of different sensors really quickly in very dynamic situations. Yeah, all while be, being very hot because your ECS doesn't work very well. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and and two, you're not doing seed for yourself, right? So uh, my point is, you're you're a part of a much larger mission that's going on, and they're relying on you. And I don't think that that people sometimes fully understand or appreciate the complexity when it comes to aviation. Uh, what time means. Right. Because the moment you take (laughs) off, you know, the clock has started, you know, I only got so much gas, you know, I I know there's been convoys that I'm supposed to cover in in Afghanistan and, you know, and and you show up because they need you to help them when they go through this town and you show up and they've already gone through the town or they, they decide to delay, you know, delay their movement or something like, look, dude, you know, this is what you got, you know? And, and so I think with seed, uh, on top of all those systems, like you said, is, is just the fact that you're you're trying to time in with probably B-52s taking off from the other side of the planet and F-15s taking off from this other base and A-10, you know, and all this other jazz. And, and if somebody misses a, a cue, then, then it, it all goes to, to pot. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, no doubt. It's definitely, timing is a huge piece. Yeah. So you had a, a, an episode on your podcast, uh, gosh, it was like two episodes ago. You were talking about that, uh, that crash down, uh, at Shaw 
um, where that, that pilot unfortunately died, um, which was just, I, you know, I knew about the event, but I didn't know the details. And then I listened to your show and it was just tragic. And it really goes to show how very small things can compound in aviation and, and result in very bad ways. And, and I'll let listeners uh, encourage them to go check out that episode. But but one thing that uh, was interesting to me, you know, you talk about the, the, the pilot that died, the training event that he was on um, sounded pretty intense. Uh, I think it was like his first seed training mission, or maybe it was the first night one. And then like the first night um, uh, aerial refuel. Is that right? Yeah, it's actually his first time he'd ever refueled. Um, yeah, he never what? refueled going through the B course, which is, yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I just dropped an episode today, which is a further deep dive into that with a little bit more context into it. So there's, I got two episodes now that are revolving around that mishap. Um, okay. and, and we could do more, right? There's so much, there's so much that goes into it. Um, yeah. that, I mean, it, it's not covered in, it's, it's still, I still scratch the surface uh, when it comes to that, but yeah, that was his first time ever okay. refueling and he does it at night. Um, I don't, I think he had had a seed day sortie, but nonetheless, okay. I mean, I remember my first time going to the tanker at night, like that was where all my energy was. Like sure. there was nothing else. So I can't imagine Oh, 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 by the way, you need to pile on the seed mission. Uh, I'm just not that yeah. smart. So, it, yeah, it's a super challenging spot he was in. Yeah, and, and you addressed it, too, in that episode that I listened to, um, that how in the cockpit recording, you, you know, he was talking to himself and frustrated. And, and I think we've all been there where just something is not going right, and you're just like, you know, and, and, and that affects you. And it, 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 it's hard to get past it a lot of times. Um, when that, when that happens. Oh, yeah, that's tough. Yeah, I think the, the snowballing thing, right? We always talk about compartmentalizing in, in aviation, especially military aviation. And I'm guilty of it, right? But yep. it's so important to like, all right, that was a mistake. Like acknowledge that, chalk it away for the debrief and then press forward and move on to the next thing. Because, you know, when you're talking about, you know, just a little bit left or right at these speeds and these altitudes and these dynamic situations, like you have to be 100% focused. And if you're not 100% focused, the probability and the chances for something going wrong at a much greater scale is just amplified. So it's so important so important to compartmentalize and it's tough to do, but it's one of those things that has to be done. Yeah, and especially when you're a junior guy and, and I know he was going through some some train up that I think, um, you know, for us in the army would it would equate to his his readiness level training and, and uh you know, you just want to get done. You just want to move yeah. on and be one of the one of the boys. You know, one of the normal guys, and not a dude that's, <laughs> that has to be held by the hand. And so, anything that delays, and I think you even addressed it too. Like it was probably going to be a while before they could redo this particular mission, and so that all this stuff is weighing on you. And I, I think it's important for anyone who's interested in, in really just it, it's good for anyone to to listen to that episode because I I think you addressed a lot of those things that, that came out of the report, and uh, it, it was good. It was good to listen to. I'm glad that you that you talked about it because it's, it's, it's universal. I mean, it's not just for flying. It, it can, it can relate to anything. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I appreciate it. It was one of those, I went back and forth as far as I actually recorded the episode twice. I didn't know if I was going to do it or not. Um, but I think, I think there's a lot of value in it that can translate across different, different disciplines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I, I'd been involved in an uh, investigation for an aircraft that, that there was a fatality and, you, you just, it, you hate it, but at the same time you learn so much from it. And, uh, it, it, 
if you can share something, I think it's, I think it's a good idea. Cause you know, you never know. Somebody could listen to that and, and just say, Hey, you know what? I can apply this in, in some way, or, you know, it may come to them at that time. You know, maybe another kid that's, it's his first time aerial refuel and he's frustrated and he just remembers, Oh gosh, you know, I got you know, the worst, worst case scenario. So yeah. at the yeah. end of the day, land and walk away and do it again is much better than the alternative. So no doubt. But, well, let's get back to you. So, uh, so we're in the F-16 now, we're, we're, we're through all our training. What was your first deployment? So I showed up to my squadron in March of 2014, knowing that I was going to deploy in the fall, but that deployment was going to be basically a show of presence in the Middle East. So we're just going to go deploy. We're going to be there um, and predominantly just conduct training missions locally. But we're there, right? So in case anything happened. Well, yeah. June of 2014 is about the time that ISIS started popping up on the world stage and everyone's radar. So we were quickly re-vectored and started preparing for a close air support deployment. So I deployed in the fall of 2014 um, to go support Operation Inherit Resolve, which wasn't even named at the time. Uh, but it was a really busy time. And it was, you know, for someone who wanted to join the military and get back at the people who are responsible for 9-11, being able to go yeah. deploy and, uh, you know, wage the nation's business was really rewarding. I mean, depends on how you look at it. Like I was definitely excited at the time. There was a, definitely a lot of risk that went into it, but uh, my timing was pretty good as far as being a fighter pilot and getting to go do the job that I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think we talked on your show. I was kind of in that area a few years later and it seemed like people were coming from everywhere and it was such a complex environment, both politically and, and tactically. And, um, yeah, it was pretty wild. So, I mean, talk a little bit about that deployment as far as, you know, I mean, were you guys getting into it? Like, like what, what's something that's, that, uh, stands out to you as an experience? The, yeah. So everything you just mentioned there is like super complex as far as like where everyone was coming from, what was going on. Um, it was interesting to see all the different parties, you know, from all the different nations that were players. And then you were doing stuff that like my first combat sortie um, was up into Syria in a town called Kabani, which at the time was a very contested point because it was on the border of Turkey. ISIS had overrun the town and they controlled the town completely. And my first drop in combat was on that sortie but the direction from the, the JTAC, you know, the Joint Terminal Attack Controller, was anything in these sectors, right, which is basically the whole town was divided up into sectors. If it is right. if it is a person, if it is a vehicle, if it's a piece of equipment, it's owned by ISIS or it is ISIS, and you can drop on it. Like, there was no clearing. Like, that was it. Like, basically going out there and just doing SCAR. So we're out there and just searching for anything that looked like the enemy. And if it was across this line, it was the enemy and we would just drop a bomb on it, uh, which is wow. pretty wild um, because yeah. everyone has grown up in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, I did MC-12s, mm. um, you know, listen to the guys who were employing weapons there. They were almost like lawyers because the rules of engagement were so strict and stringent. Oh, yeah. That carried over into all of our training. Uh, and then fast forward my first combat deployment. It actually was a Link 16 data message that that told us that uh, so in theory not talking to a single person just going out there and finding things that look bad and dropping bombs on them it's pretty wild yeah based on a text message 
Yeah, you know, so, um, and I would say that whole deployment, like our unit dropped the most precision guided weapons of any F-16 unit in history. And I've said it before, like the next unit that showed up beat us and then the next unit that showed up beat them. Like it was so yeah. busy um, because ISIS has just grown to such a massive army, if you will. And what they were able to accomplish in just a relatively short time period was rather impressive, at least I consider it impressive. But they gave us a lot of targets, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, for people who maybe forgot or didn't pay attention at that time, I mean, you're right. They It, it was a grassroots to suddenly like, oh, my God, you know, like, I mean, we had we had an aircraft still in Baghdad on the Army side. And I mean, those guys were getting into it because ISIS was just, you know, moving across Iraq that rapidly. Um, and I don't think anyone prepared for that. So, so yeah, it's a definitely a target rich environment. And, and like you said, the, the disparity of what you just described to, to my own experience in Afghanistan in, in 2009, 2010, I mean, I, I remember one night having an engagement after essentially begging over SATCOM for, you know, 30 plus minutes to get the right person on the line and say the right words in the right order. You know, it was right. like, it was like, it was like conjuring a wizard or something, trying to, <laughs> trying to get this approval. And I landed with the, the fuel, just the fuel uh, warning just going off and had been going off for quite some time when we landed. I mean, we had, I think, the, I think the fuel gauge in the Kiowa stops uh, being accurate at around 25 pounds. I know that's like probably <laughs> two seconds of flight for you. Um, and I, and I think we were at that or we were at right above it. It was, it was not, I mean, I was riding on one cheek the whole way back, but but Gosh. to your point, like just um, trying to get the approval and then you guys are just like, hey, yeah, if there's anything over there, just just do it. But of course, you're you're not just randomly. I mean, you're you're doing your due diligence. You've got a, a pod, I'm assuming. And you're you know, you're looking at these targets and um, and, and engaging. So you're, you guys are dropping laser guided bombs mostly. Yeah. So, I mean, it depends. Like, so that was a smack tasking message. So basically there's different types of messages yeah. you can get. And that one's like, when you get a smack message, it's like, go hit this and, and bomb it. Like it, mm-hmm. everything's already been vetted. And then there's like sure. investigate and you know, things. So, uh, I mean, predominantly okay. we were talking to a JTAC on the ground or yeah. he was nearby. Right. So there's a lot of eyes that are going into this and a lot of, you know, ICOM yeah. chatter and they, they know these guys are bad. Um, yeah. and also you can see some of the bad stuff that's happening through the targeting pod. Um, which I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of mind boggling to, to think of how that all evolved and just how busy it was in just such a short, short time period. But as far as the weapons go, it it depends. Um, yeah, we started off carrying GBU 12s and a carried two GBU 12s, a GBU 38 and a GBU 54, all 500 pound class weapons, but Mm -hmm. the GBU 12s purely laser guided GBU 38 is GPS guided and the 54 can be laser or GPS guided. Um, and that was our, our, our loadout to begin with. We sometimes would mix in, um, well, really we switched to carrying all 38s and 54s in the winter because of the weather, right? Weather is a factor right. when it comes to lazing weapons, but it doesn't affect GPS. Uh, and then we also started carrying GBU 31s, 2000 pound class weapons and GBU 39s, which are 250 pound small diameter bombs, which are really impressive. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be, I saw a picture the other day of an aircraft that had a bunch of those on. I assume that's what it was because they were smaller. And I think that's what the uh, the Reaper guys drop too. I think they've got smaller bombs like that. Yeah, I can't, I don't know if they can carry them or not, um, but it, it would not surprise me. But the fact that 
it's our newest kind of smart bomb. You know, mm. it's, it's very effective, good ranges on it. Um, you know, if you want to fly into the side of a window or something like that, if you got good enough coordinates, you can do it. But the collateral yeah. damage from it obviously is, is lower. It's just a very effective, effective weapon. Yeah. For, yeah. Depending on the scenario. Yeah. And I mean, in that kind of fight, that's, that's what you want. You, you, it, you know, we used to shoot hellfires at, you know, dudes implanting IDs and you're, you're just like, man, this is, it's a really expensive way to take care of this problem. So <laughs> you're dropping a 500 pound bomb on a, on a Toyota with a machine gun on the back. You know, you're probably having the same thought process. Like, man, yeah. that was, that was a big boom for that truck. But if you can have something smaller like that, um, that, that's definitely more cost effective in the long run. Um, yeah. did you guys ever do anything with the gun? Um, so yeah, I actually never, that's straight once. Uh, but strafing was a very common thing for most guys in the beginning. We actually stopped mm. strafing about halfway through our deployment because of the risk. Um, we had a Jordanian pilot go down who was, uh, unfortunately, he was captured and he was killed. But out yeah. of it came for like, hey, if in the event you do go down, like rescue is going to be tough, right? So then you're looking like, right. unless there are friendlies who are getting ready to get overrun and you have no other options, don't strafe. Like we stopped doing yo-yo ops, which is where one of us go to the tanker or doing split yeah. ops where you might be a formation, you might be separated by 50 or 60 nautical miles working two different things. Um, mm. Just so you had the mutual support because if you, if you went down at that time in that environment, um, you didn't have a whole lot of options and it wasn't going to, it probably was not going to end very well for you. So there was a Dutch Viper from our base that actually took a 7.62 round through the bottom of the motor, uh, chewed it up and kept on going. But then it kind of wow. came to the question of like, do we really need to be doing this when we have other other options to go out there and employ? Yeah. No, that's, wow. I, I don't know that. That's crazy. Yeah, well, not Jordanian. I mean, that was obviously all over the news and it was pretty terrible. But you're right. That, that environment was not, you know, we talk about the differences between Afghanistan and Iraq you know, in essentially the days I grew up in, if you will, where you, you know, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting 20 dudes that could save you from different directions. But, you know, in those early days in, in Syria, there was, that was it. It was just you and your buddy and woe be unto you if you had to parachute into that mess. Yeah, it would not, it would not end well. No, that's tough. So, all right. So you were there for that period. I mean, what other, did you do any other deployments after that? So, uh, that deployment was my last, my one and only deployment in F-16. I came back to Shaw. I did training, you know, spinning it for combat for the next round um, for about a year and a half. And that's when I eventually transitioned to the demo team. I was hired to do that job, which, again, vastly different than doing anything combat or tactically related in F-16. So, yeah, what what's the deal with the demo team? So does every aircraft... In the inventory, I mean, I guess you say every fighter. I don't think there's B fifty two demos or anything, but but do like all the fighter communities have a demo team? Is it like a centralized thing? Is it a unit thing? How does that work? So, Air Combat Command is one of our major commands. They own mm. fighters and bombers. I mean, there's Pacific Air Forces and European, which have fighters as well. Uh, but Air Combat Command has an F sixteen demo, F twenty two, an F thirty five, and an A ten demo team. The Strike Eagle doesn't have one, and the and the F fifteen doesn't have one. Uh, Why don't they have one? Past, well, they they had them um, pre sequestration. The Strike Eagle mm-hmm. released and sequestration nixed that as well as all the other demo teams, and they never came back. And there's a lot mm-hmm. to go into like fighter pilot production and their tempo and 
trying mm-hmm. to produce fighter pilots because they initially had the capacity to do it. The F-15C demo team went away uh, when the Raptor came online. It transitioned the 15 over to the F-22. I'm not sure the exact reasons, but I can probably guess the fact that you know the F-22 was now the new air dominance fighter, and it was time to go out there and showcase that. Um, right. And then same models getting older and limited resources, so that was probably a pretty easy easy kill of that. So, so what is the the demo team consist of? Is it just a pilot? Is it a bunch of pilots? Like, how does that work? So the way the Air Force does it, it's one demo pilot that does a two year assignment. There'll be mm-hmm. six other pilots selected at that base to be safety observers, and they're the one that flies other jet to air shows. Um, and they're the eyes and ears on the ground to read the checklist, to back up the demo pilot if stuff's going wrong or weird, to basically be their wingman on, on the ground there. Uh, and those safety observers, they kind of rotate through. But as a demo pilot, your sole job is just doing air shows. You're initially slated for 20 air shows a year. I think every year mm-hmm. I did it, it was like 25 or 30 air shows and different events, flyovers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be one like you maintain your proficiency down in the squadron and you also did demo. And we had a mishap in the early 2000s. And out of that mishap, the Air Force said, hey, when you're doing this job, this needs to be your only focus because you're just doing different stuff at low altitude and high Gs that uh, it's good just to have the reps and not be worried about other things that are going on. Um, I still maintain my, my, I guess I was current in the F-16, as far as all the tactics, I had to go take a check ride doing a tactical mm-hmm. mission every year. I was mm-hmm. nowhere close to being proficient in anything tactical. Yeah, you'd have to definitely get the, the rust kicked off you before you can get back into the into the swing of things. But uh, did, did you you said you tried out for the demo? Like, how does that work if you want to be a demo guy? Like, what do you what do you have to do? Uh, right place, right time. And then mm. they have to make the call requesting you know, for applicants to apply to be the demo pilot. So I was in that right place, right time. Um, they were looking for a demo pilot, so I applied. And for the F-16, it's done. Anyone who's assigned at, at Shaw, you basically throw your, your name in the hat. You put in a resume. Um, uh, maybe even like, I can't remember. It was like a, a letter of like why you wanted to do it. And then you interviewed with the operations group commander, which is the first 06. And then you interview with the wing commander. And the wing commander makes the ultimate decision who's going to be the demo pilot uh, for oh. that. And then, then you okay. go through an upgrade process, which requires uh, a check ride, which is by several different people to include the ops group commander, then one for the wing commander, and then the numbered Air Force commander, which is a two-star, and then finally Air Combat Command, the four-star. He doesn't ride mm-hmm. with you, but they stand on the ground. They watch you, basically tell you, don't mess up. Yeah, I mean that's a pretty uh, high vis job. Obviously, you're 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 part of the recruiting effort at that point. Yeah, it's one of those things that you know. One, if you packed it in at an air show, uh, mm. God forbid you kill someone. But obviously, the negative implications for recruiting and the yeah. air force, you know. So it's one of those things you just have to go out there and know really not only you know our lives on the line if you make a mistake and mostly mm. yours, but it's going to have a very negative impact and negative look for the air force and basically undo all the goodwill that the whole point of this effort was for. Yeah. 
Yeah, the only uh, the only air show mishap. I used to go to air shows at McDill all, all the time growing up. And the only mishap I, I chuckled just no one was really hurt. But the uh, army, well, the special operations community did a did a, a demonstration, and it was a really windy day. And they did this very low drop of these dudes, and I don't know, they were several hundred feet, you know, um, jumping out of a C one thirty, I think, and the wind caught these dudes. And just dragged them straight into the crowd. And um, I watched one guy slam into the side of, I think it was an A6 intruder was parked there. Another dude slammed into a garbage can and started rolling away with, I mean, these guys were, were hundreds of meters off of, you know, where they were supposed to be. And like troopers, they all got up from after running into these multi-million dollar jets and <laughs> they grabbed their, their stuff and ran back out and put on the show. But but um, but yeah, I mean that's uh, obviously high vis stuff. So, as far as like the uh, the Thunderbirds, is that like like a stepping stone? Like if you you know if you wanted to, is that kind of get your foot in the door to do that, or is that a completely different situation? It, it's completely different. There have been guys who have gone on and and been a Thunderbird after being a demo pilot. But you know, technically, where you are in your career to be a demo pilot, like that's the time you'd be a Thunderbird with exception of being like the commander or the number two, the DO in the squadron. Okay, um, yeah. You know, it's all senior captains and majors who are making up the Thunderbirds. So if you did that back to back one, it'd be, I would say probably soul crushing for you and your family just based on the tempo. But two, yeah. like as far as career broadening goes, you're definitely not getting it and you're not being, you know, tactical. So I mean, guys have done it. Um, you know, it, it, it just wouldn't be the, it would not be a normal career progression. And I think, you know, for yeah. me, like, people are like, Oh, you want to be a Thunderbird? And me, me personally, no, like I love the air show world. I love the community. I had a blast flying, uh, doing yeah. that. And I would like to do air shows on the civilian side, but, um, it's definitely just a really, really busy pace. The nice thing about a demo team, it's you as the commander and you have like six to 10 maintainers that are part of your team that you get to work with. So you're very close knit little family going out there and doing the job versus, you know, just a really big team where you kind of lose, lose some of that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, I never thought of it in those terms that you're probably, it's one or the other in this terms of where you are in your career, uh, career progression. Um, That's a good point. It sounds like a good little gig between deployments, really. I mean, you just get to go have some fun and live like a rock star, probably. Yeah, I mean, the flying was awesome. I got to do some incredible things, meet some incredible people, and work with some incredible people. So it definitely was a a blast. And I'm so fortunate I was able to do it uh, because, I mean, you're going to do stuff that that you dream about. Like Miami, I flew Mm -hmm. it two years in a row, and I'm, I'm level with cruise ships going down the canal at, 600 knots and wrapping around buildings like this is like grand theft auto you know so right. <laughs> i was like this is awesome and this is completely legal you know actually right, I, yeah. wish, I wish i had my gopro wasn't recording but the first year i flew miami it was memorial day weekend and there was a navy destroyer it was a big boat i assume it was a destroyer but they were all <laughs> out there on the ship and there were white uniforms coming into port um yeah. also like their homecoming you know and I got to go raging over them at 600 knots, uh, which I felt was an appropriate amount of freedom. Um, yeah. But it's like, that's just stuff you just don't get to do that you dream about. So it was cool. Yeah. No, that's that's awesome. I I flew a, uh, a JTAC 
I flew several JTACs, but I remember flying this one kid, Air Force guy. We just come back from deployment. I think we did some incentive flights for him. So in the OH-58, you could fly it single pilot. Um, you couldn't really do that with the Apache and things like that. So uh, we would offer that up when we could. And I remember flying this kid and we were, you know, moving at 110 knots, you know, right, right above the trees. And, and I remember him looking out the door and, you know, we had the doors off. So the wind is blowing and stuff. And he just looks out and he's like, man, this is so much cooler than the time I got to ride in that F-16. <laughs> Damn right it is. <laughs> but I think his point was, you know, you're kind of highlighting the fact that you're doing stuff in an F-16 that the average guy probably didn't get to do, right? You're not, you, you know, they're not whipping around buildings. They're, not, they're up at, they're up at altitude. Yeah, you're, you're hauling ass, but you, when you're that yeah. high speed is relative. And I think that's what I took from his comment is like, yeah, we're yeah. really low. And so we're going 110 knots and it feels like you're going a million miles an hour, but um, but yeah, that sounds amazing. And, and like you said, growing up, wanting to be a, a fighter pilot, that that's gotta be the dream come true. Just doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I completely relate. You know, I spent a year waiting to go to pilot training and I was attached to an H 60 unit. I remember mm. riding along with them, door open, feet hanging out the door, uh, just, <laughs> you know, doing these like river runs, like <laughs> you're below the tree line. Yeah. And it's true. Speed yeah, is yeah. based on altitude. Uh, that was pretty awesome. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so I, I had a listener question that, uh, you know, I, I put out to people and said, hey, you know, we're going to have uh, rain on to the show. And so we do have a question here and I wanted to, you kind of broached it already, but I just want to make sure that it's covered. So uh, he says, hey guys, my name is James. I'm 17 and I'm finishing up my senior year. My dream is to become an officer in the Air Force and fly fighters. I was recently admitted to Emory-Riddle, Prescott and Norwich University into the Corps of Cadets. At both, uh, I would be doing Air Force ROTC. I currently have my helicopter private pilot's license. That's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, um, nice. And I have, yeah, it's 17. And I've been admitted into the helicopter program at Emory-Riddle. I'm reaching out to ask some general advice. Do you think it would be worth it to do the helicopter program at Emory-Riddle if I want to fly in the Air Force? At the end of the program, I would have my commercial helicopter rating. Uh, part of the idea was if I'm going to college, I want to do something I really enjoy, but I don't know if doing this program would hurt me in the long run compared to getting a non-flying degree. Uh, so, I mean, I think you kind of addressed that, but what are your thoughts listening to that question? Well, one, I think, I mean, that's awesome, um, especially being that, like, focused and dedicated at such a young age. Um, I think, you know, you, you got it, and he said it, do something you like. Um, I did yeah. international affairs going through college. If I could go back and do it again, I probably would do something purely for the fact that international affairs wasn't a great fallback if I didn't get a pilot slot. Um, I think I probably have liked architecture or something along those lines. So I mm -hmm. think it's smart to, one, pursue pursue something you have a passion about. Hopefully, it's something that you can earn a living on, and it's a fallback if plan A doesn't work. But, um, you know, having that helicopter license and pursuing that, you know, that that is, I mean, I think potentially great fallback. We all know the aviation industry can have some cycles, as we're witnessing right now. Um, mm. but if you, you know, if you enjoy that, like having that airmanship and this might be beyond his question, right? Like that airmanship he's gaining from being a helicopter pilot, like, does that translate to fixed wing aviation? Yeah, you bet. And you're a prime example of it. Um, the air force doesn't care. You know, they're going to make you a fighter pilot and having the, the ability, the left hand, right hand up down, um, is going to be a invaluable skill set if you're trying to pursue to be yeah. a fighter pilot. But I think when it comes down to it, again, the most important thing is pursue something you're passionate about because you'll do it well and you'll want to succeed. And 
bonus would be something you can fall back on and make a, make a living off of. Yeah. And I, and I think you and I probably both agree that the stick wiggling isn't really the hard part. It's, it's the, all the other stuff, right? It's, it's understanding, yeah. uh, communications, it's having air sense and understanding, you know, your, your place in space and time. And those are the things that, that you are going to be, you're going to stand out in flight school when you have that. You know, I know guys who teach down at Rucker as instructor pilots and they, they say the guys can tell them that they don't have a license. They know the guys that do because they yep. just already are switched on and all those things. And they may not be great at flying the aircraft, but you can tell that they have some experience. So I think that, uh, yeah, that can only help. Um, but the air force would not discriminate, at least to your understanding, if he went through flight school, it's not going to be like, well, we're going to make you be a helicopter pilot because you already have a helicopter license. It's not going to work nope. that way. No, though, again, it kind of goes back to like, they don't care where you went to school. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you have all this, if you were a, a regional pilot and you show up just because you're a regional pilot, you know, flying Embraer's or whatever, uh, they're not going to put mm-hmm. you on the heavy track, right? Like if you perform well and you're in the top of your class and you want to go fly fighters, then you're on track to the T-38 route. Um, again, yeah. there's, they don't care where you came from. Now there's some unique opportunities that the Air Force is rolling down the pipeline that might abbreviate training based on like uh, your previous experience. So if you're a regional guy, they're looking at routes that take you right to a heavy, um, hmm. which, but yeah, if you want to fly fighters, you're probably going to have to go through more or less a traditional route. So I think having the helo experience, like that's something I would like to learn how to fly as much yeah. crap as I give helo pilots, you know, because it's just <laughs> taking itself violently apart, but it's, you, you're getting airmanship. He'll have experiences and be exposed to problems and situations that his peers will never be exposed to that. I'll never be exposed to. Again, yeah. I reference the things just shaking itself apart, you know. So, um, right. <laughs> yep, they like to beat themselves to death if you don't yeah. uh, corral them in. So, not like not like a regular airplane. It just F sixteen. You guys probably don't even have to touch the controls. It just does its right. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> it just does it all. It does it all for you. <laughs> That's right. It's a computer takeoff. I got it. Go. Um, so, so tell us. We'll wrap up. Just tell us about your show and for for people that, that haven't heard of it. Yeah, I think you know you and I. Um, kind of aligned with what we're trying to do. There's a lot of incredible people out there that I've met over my short period in the Air Force and just life in general that have some great stories and lessons to share that I think are invaluable for people to hear. So the Afterburn Podcast, you know, my goal is to bring those people together and share their stories and share the story that people have, who have walked the path so that hopefully it can help other people out with whatever might be going on in their life or whatever their pursuit or goal is, um, you know, it's, it's bringing that all together. So, um, I appreciate you joining me on the podcast again. It's, it's a broad, it's a range, mostly military yeah. focused right now, but again, we're trying to broaden the path and what we, what we reach and what we touch, so to speak. Cool. Yeah. Um, it's a great show and you know, it's available wherever your fine podcasts are found. Um, like you said, I think you just came out with another one today. You mentioned, I did see that right before we started. I was like, oh, I wish I had to listen to that. Um, Cause I did see that it was about the the investigation, but yeah, I encourage everyone to take a look at that. And, and uh, I want to thank you for, for not just coming on the show, but you know, I want to thank you for, you know, this sort of podcast buddy relationship we've got yeah. going on. Um, you know, to speak to, to your character, I think, uh, and you know this story, but I'll tell it for the sake of the listeners. You know, I, when I, I'd heard you on the Fire Pilot podcast doing, you know, like a little promo or whatever you're talking to Jello, 
And so I knew of your show for a while and I just hadn't got around to listening to it. And then I, I went for a jog and, and, and was listening to your, your first episode and I got back. I said, you know, I'm just going to shoot this guy a note. And this was right after I started my show and, uh, and, and emailed you and just said, Hey, you know, this is me. I got a show too. I just want to say, Hey, I mean, you wrote me right back probably within an hour or so. I want to say you wrote me back and, and, and we started chatting and, and I want to highlight that because, you know, it didn't have to go that way because I think a lot of times in this type of environment, you know, I, I struggle to call it this business that we're in because we, you know, it's not our day job, but um, it's easy to look at these things and be like, wow, you know, this guy's been muscling in on my territory or something like that. But, but it was never like that, um, you know, talking to you and, and, and hopefully I've never given those vibes either. I don't think so. So, uh, but I appreciate you and I appreciate the, the relationship that we have uh, between our shows and I, I hope that it can continue. So I, I, thanks a lot for, for coming on today. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. And I, I mean, I think that is a testament to, to military aviation for the most part. And I mean, I've told people this, I don't know, it's like always just trying to be a good dude or dudette. Um, yeah. And this is a prime example of rising tides, lift all ships, you know, Jello reached out to me when I first started, right. And he offered his assistance and, you know, it's one of those things that I think you get further in life when you help other people out and you help the team out. And you and I both come from backgrounds where, I mean, it's essential. We must work together and together as a team, we're stronger, you know, and I think this is, I think there's so much, if you and I interviewed the same people, it'd be a completely different story, right? Uh, there's a lot of value, there's a lot of content out there that hopefully people enjoy and, you know, we can try to produce some. <laughs> Now, some of you are probably scratching your head saying, hey, I thought this was a helicopter show. And while we'll predominantly cover the rotary wing experience, we're also going to feature our fixed wing friends because the real purpose and interest here is to examine that whole air-to-ground experience, and the Viper is certainly an air-to-ground player. We've got a few more fixed wing guys lined up as well, so hopefully you'll enjoy that too. I did get a chance to sit down with Rain a little bit longer as he shared some of his experiences in the Horn of Africa. It's a pretty compelling story about understanding your environment and knowing your limits. So again, if you're interested to hear about that and other bonus content, check out that Patreon. Additionally, I just finished up recording episode 11, and I wanted to share just a small clip from that bonus content just to kind of give you an idea of what to expect when you do become a supporter of the show. Um, these two soldiers dragged somebody by their IBA on the ground. Um, you're still alive. I mean, it wasn't too bad looking, but I just remember dragging across the rocks on the ground and being like, holy, this is real. Like this is, um, and coach John comes up to me eventually. Cause again, I'm, I have this little nine mil and I'm guarding this big giant doorway. He's like, I got this, go watch one of the windows. So I go to one of the side windows and I see, um, this Toyota white, like junky Toyota Tacoma. Um, and apparently had special forces guys and it must've been armored. Cause I remember they lobbed like they, the, those that were trying to attack the fob, was a grenade lobbed at it at it i see it so i duck i hear the explosion i look again and all it did was piss off those two guys that were in that truck the two special forces guy because one jumps out and use a doorway for like cover and starts shooting he like sets his weapon on the on the open window of the open door and the guy starts driving forward with it um and there's a video out there because we had an air team that was up in the air um and they just took out the last two that were trying to hide um but I remember us finally like bounding back to, to, you know, our, our CP to, for accountability and whatnot. Well, that'll be it for us here. I want to extend our thanks to the fighter pilot podcast for their support to our little corner of the internet. And of course to rain and the afterburn podcast. You should check out both of those shows if you haven't already, as they're both providing some real world-class content. Views expressed do not represent the department of defense or any private business. We appreciate your listening and your continued support. And we'll see you all again in two weeks.